Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Anna Catherine Clay. Prof, so great to have you here. Thank you very much for joining us. And Thank you I'd for like having begin, me. I'd like to begin by asking, what's going on for you? What are you thinking about? What's preoccupying you? And these might be wonderful flights of fancy and fun things. They might be awful things. They might be professional things. They could be familial, whatever it may be. Well, there's always a lot occupying my mind, <laughs> primarily because I wear two hats. So as you well pointed out, I am a professor at the University of Virginia in the media studies department, and our semester starts in a week and a day. So most of my brain cells have been occupied by putting together my syllabi for my classes. I'm teaching two new classes this spring and then one that I've only taught once before. So I've been intensively preparing or trying to. So that's been, I would say, like 70% of my brain. Um, and then sort of the news of the day is always swirling my brain. But as you and I both know, a lot of the news is very heavy and intense these days. So I try not to let it overwhelm my mind. Um, and then my creative side, I'm still, you know, a freelance journalist as well. And that side is also sort of always attuned to what's happening and then thinking about story ideas um, around that, which because of my academic job, I don't have a lot of time for once my semester starts, but I still always like to think about them. And I keep a list of them in my phone so that then when time allows for it, uh, I can really pursue those creatively. And I will say the last thing I've been thinking a lot about is a lot of the stories that I've always been interested in as a storyteller, um, sort of looking at the impact of sport for social change, social justice, um, the good work that athletes do and try to bring to light. I've tried to bring into my academic world and research a little more. So I've also been thinking a lot about, I've been applying for grant funding and thinking about how I can introduce that more in the classroom and inspire my students to think about their own place in the world and how they might impact their own communities in a positive way, whether that be through storytelling and sport or not. Um, but more and more, I've tried to introduce that. I've taught at UVA now, this is my seventh year, and this is the more and more progressively, I've tried to sort of challenge my students to realize like we all can be storytellers and we all can have an impact. And so don't just sit in the classroom and learn and be reactive, like take what you are learning think about it critically, and then go be proactive. So that's the last thing. As I said, there's always a lot happening, but um, I think about that so much before the semester, and then I try to always have it in my mind throughout the semester so we don't get so mired in the work that then that falls to the background. Mm. Wow, great answer, and thanks for that. So it's clear that you take a lot from your prior professional and ongoing professional experience as a journalist both broadcast and uh, written, as it were, not that those distinctions really apply anymore, as we both know. But I'm wondering whether there's anything, and you can say one word answer with two letters in it, whether there's anything from academia that you're bringing on the other side into your journalism, your professional practice. Is there anything that we buggers do, that we bastards do, that's of utility? Or is it all something from the professional world that you can bring to academic study? It's a good question. <laughs> That's my first answer. I would say 
Because <laughs> I come into academia as a practitioner. I mean, honestly, I've always felt my professional life has influenced my academia a lot more than my academic life has mm. influenced my mm -hmm. professional. Um, so it's more, I would say, I try to glean what I appreciate about academia, which for me, I mean, I love teaching. I love the students. And the old cliche of my students teach me so much is actually quite true for me. And so often the things we talk about in the classroom, I mean, I've even had students talk about things that I think are a great story idea, you know? So I I was sort of mulling over um, an idea that I have this morning that I want to pitch that originated with my students in the classroom and having a discussion in my athletes activism in the media class. Um, so I would say the students own experiences and perspective actually influences my creative and journalistic pursuits. Mm -hmm. And to your earlier point, you know, I came up through journalism at a time when it was far enough ago, it was long enough ago that I could say, you know, I primarily went to focus on print or writing at ESPN. And then I did learn producing and camera work. However, I do think now because my students need to be such multimedia practitioners that that also informs how I look at my own journalistic work. When I moved to New York in the 1990s, early 1990s, and people from the networks would come and interview me, there'd be a sound recordist a camera operator, a producer, and a journalist who was not the producer, and they were not one person, and they were not using a telephone. <laughs> exactly. Right? I mean, it's incredible. And now if you work for someone like NBC, you're going to be not only recording for NBC and for its affiliates, but for CNBC, MSNBC, CNBC Asia, Africa, Europe, you name it, right? And there are other varieties. Same if you're ESPN or whatever it might be. And uh, I'm astonished at the amount of labor that is put onto individual journalists now by contrast with the past and the multi-skilling and the loss of expertise, high-level expertise, and the abandonment of high production levels. Yes. Oh, for sure. I mean, as I say to students now, you're exactly right. I had the good fortune Often, you know, if I were reporting a story for ESPN and then they were they were also producing a television feature, there would be a producer there. There would be a full camera crew. I mean, now I bring in recent graduates of my program to speak to the current students to say, you're going to show up with your camera. You are your audio producer. You are your television producer. You are your segment producer. You are your interviewer. You are your fact checker. And you are you do need to be your own expert to your point. And it's rare you can, you know, successfully wear all those hats also with the time demands of the industry, you know, and that's not the fault of the individual. That's the culture we've created. And it is, I mean, I don't envy young journalists today. No, because and by the way, no job so for much. life, no job for life, maybe no health, health care, blah, blah, right? blah. It's a tough life. So <clears throat> my work in sports was on radio and I used to run a desk where I would, this is many years ago, before you were born probably, but I would be making decisions about which sport to run to, mm. which event to try to capture, you know, 10 voices in the cans 
telling me what was happening in X or, or Y event. And I remember thinking, good grief, this is difficult. But I had a producer and I had an engineer <laughs> and I had people at the grounds. I still got lots of things wrong, but it was exciting and I had support. And I worry for younger people today lacking that and lacking the specialisms. Anyway, enough of my incredibly insignificant autobiography on these matters. I wanted to ask you what it's like being in a school that is renowned. UVA is a great college, great research university, but it doesn't have a J school. Right. Does that make things a bit lonely for you? I sometimes describe it as I feel like I brought, I sort of brought my own curriculum and ideas of what I wished I had had at a liberal arts institution as an undergraduate to UVA, because I attended Davidson College, excellent school, small school in North Carolina. Your sports tie is Stephen Curry. He's our, by far, our most famous sporting alum. Um, and I loved, I absolutely loved my experience there. I also graduated, and once, a few years down the road, I realized I wanted to go into journalism. I felt it was imperative that I go to graduate school to learn what a lot of my peers at Syracuse and Columbia and Northwestern had learned in their undergraduate years. So when I first approached UVA about, about teaching, it was just one class as an adjunct. It was sports journalism. Um, I said, I want to call it storytelling through the lens of sport. And they said, no, that title is too long. <laughs> but then, and they were correct. But then when I called it sports journalism, I remember the first faculty meeting I attended uh, a very tenured member of the department said, you know, well, we're not a journalism school. We shouldn't have journalism in the title of a course. And I was a little taken aback because I knew it was a little arts institution. And yet there was such interest from the students in sports storytelling. Yeah. The athletic programs are incredibly successful at UVA. So there's a lot of athlete narratives, team narratives, coach narratives that the students could pursue themselves. And to me, it's just whatever industry you go into to learn to be an effective, succinct, succinct, excellent storyteller will serve you well, you know, and, and I do think we see that now. Thus, I sort of had to create my own lane almost within yeah, the department. Yeah. And I have found our department is media studies. It is very supportive. Like I have a lot of autonomy in what I teach and the students love the classes. Um, they always feel quickly with typically waiting lists. And I think that also shows the efficacy of the learning and the curriculum. And, you know, I appreciate now, I would say in 2024, my department is starting to talk about um, having journalism as a more established part of the curriculum. There's your cat. And I hope that continues because I feel, you know, very strongly about it. Um, but I kind of liked you know, they, I don't know if I want to say the challenge is the right word, but coming into a department that isn't, you know, an established renowned journalism school. Well, here's the thing, because sports journalism in many countries is called the toy department by other yes. journalists. Yes. Now, For you sure. don't suffer this in Bristol, Connecticut, if you're at ESPN, or uh, Sky Sports, if you're in Brentford, London. Uh, God help you if you're in Brentford, London, but whatever. <laughs> where everybody's doing sports, but within J schools, it can also be derided as not serious. Right. 
it, it can be a big issue. And similarly, purely digital media can be regarded as the toy store by old school types. And if you're doing sports journalism within a purely digital context, you can be regarded as the toy store within the toy store. So Very I true. want to ask you about that issue, because I'm guessing that you avoid that in a way by precisely not being in a J school that's established where sports might be off to the margins, if present at all. I think I've somewhat managed to avoid it for the reason you said, and I'm now on the general faculty and I teach typically three, sometimes four different courses a semester. And so, for example, one of the classes I've designed is athletes, activism in the media. And I think the whole point there, you know, we look at historical athlete activists who used their sporting platform to impact or ignite change or resistance. Um, Billie Jean King, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, you know, and so that's, and we also look at how the media covered those athlete activists and we learn from the media's mistakes. And then we try to understand what the media did well. And so I think in offering courses like that, much of what I've tried to show is that sport really is a microcosm of society. And if you're going to teach sports journalism, it is not coming into the classroom to say who's going to play in Super Bowl on February 9th, 2024, or whatever the date is. See, I don't even know the date because to me, that's not what the class is. It's learning mm -hmm. to be effective storytellers across different medium. And often what I challenge the students to do is don't look linearly at sport. Don't pitch a story on LeBron James because that has been done. It's really going to be hard to find anything new to say about LeBron James. Find a topic or an issue that our society is facing, immigration, women's rights, and find a way to effectively storytell around that issue through a sports lens. So that's always been a big focus of mine. And I think in doing that, I've been able to show and demonstrate the effective learning that can happen, even with sports in the moniker, right? That And that it's not just sitting around talking about. And I will tell you, I mean, some of my students push back and they're like, I wish we had spent more time just sitting around talking about sports. And I'm like... That may be the case, but that is not what you are coming into these classrooms to learn and debate and discuss. Well, so, I, you know, I also love for them to look at the problems of the sport media landscape. I mean, you and I both know it's still largely white males that dominate that space, even with all these new mediums. And, and I love for the students to first have an awakening to that if they haven't, and then to really critique and break down the data and the numbers, the why, the how, and then for them to really intentionally think about well, how can we ch change the landscape so that those practitioners are reflective of the populations they're covering? And that was going to be my next question, actually, uh, specifically on gender, although race and class and disability and age are all very important elements. But exactly. this has really been a, a white guy's domain historically in the United States and elsewhere, whether we're talking about you know, so-called writers, per great examples like Roger Angel, whom I'm not here to criticize at all, uh, or it is play-by-play -play announcers or whatever it might be. And frequently in the United States, if women get on camera, they are running the sidelines and doing interviews and often not welcome, as you know, in, in uh, the changing room. And of course, it's men's sports that has tended to dominate. 
there is change happening and you've been part of that change. But could you tell us a little bit about what you've witnessed in terms of the obstacles and the progress? Well, certainly I started at ESPN, the magazine in 2005. I started as an intern at the time and I was not really aware of the landscape truly like I was a little bit naive I had interned at the New England Sports Network I went to graduate school at Boston University and there were no women on staff <laughs> when I was interning there and it was I want to say 100% white male uh, hopefully that is wrong in my recollection but that was really stark for me coming in I was only 24 um it was not overall the best experience in the sense that to your point like I don't think I was really seen as an equal who could offer, you know, intelligent analysis of sport. It, it was often assumed at the time, if you were a woman wanting to work in sport media, there was some ulterior motive there, right? It wasn't just that you wanted to be an excellent journalist. You, if, if so, you would pick a different industry, right? And so that was that was challenging. And I also knew this was really the industry I wanted to work in. And so I was like, I just want to stay the course see where I go next. Now, when I got to ESPN the magazine, it was an incredibly diverse staff, <laughs> like far more so than sport media as a whole. Um, the There was a deputy editor who was a female. A lot of my section editors were women, Some many women of color. Um, there were men of color. And so, and I always tell my students this, I felt very fortunate to come into that as my first professional experience. However, when I left those offices in Manhattan, it was very different. It was still, you know, the first time in a clubhouse, um, several major league baseball players were totally inappropriate to me. Um, probably because, you know, I wasn't a regular, I wasn't a beat writer. I hadn't been there before. I remember it very well. I was young. Um, I had a NFL player in my first, I sort of took a solo trip to a bunch of NFL training camps early on. And, one NFL player looked at me and assumed I was the team massage therapist and <laughs> immediately laid down on the massage table. And I'd already sort of set up an interview scenario for us. I had set up two chairs. I had a notebook. I had a recorder. And yet, and I was dressed very conservatively. And then he just looked at me and laid down on the massage table. And that was an awkward moment. He, you know, he, he took it very seriously. He was embarrassed. He was not trying to take advantage of any situation, but it, that was just the assumption, right? Like when he saw me. So that was 2005, 2006, 2007, right? I do think we have really come a long way in how we view women in this industry. There's still obviously work to be done, but the numbers are better, at least from a gender perspective. Um, you know, now we have trans reporters, we have non-binary reporters. So I think, and I hope, I always say this to my students because, you know, I'm, I'm pretty far removed from the day to day, like when I worked at ESPN. Um, but I always want that feedback from my students who are going into the industry, particularly, you know, yes, I want to hear from the white males about their experience as much, if not more so. I want to hear from my non-white male students, you know, what is it like now for you? What do you encounter? Um, I always really appreciated when I had allies in there who would stand up for me. I remember one time I was at the Carolina Panthers doing some reporting and again, I was one of, I think, two women in there in the locker room. The media time was ending. One player came up and was very sort of rude and obnoxious loudly so that others would notice, um, particularly about me being a woman. But then another player who I remember very specifically came up and defended me and said, you know, she's asking great questions. She deserves to be here. I'm going to finish my interview with her. And so, you know, I think there were situations that weren't ideal and 
I often found sometimes it was fellow reporters, right, or people who worked for the team um, who did really want to support the idea of women being there. And I would always lean into those friendships and relationships, especially because I was since I was a national writer, I was never with one team very long. You know, so it wasn't like a beat writer who I have a good friend um, who's a beat writer for the Pittsburgh Steelers for ESPN. And she's on TV a lot too, Brooke Pryor. She's amazing. And, you know, she talks a lot about now because she is with the Steelers and around them so often, she really does feel respected, you know, as a as an expert voice, as a wise mind, as a intelligent and compassionate mm-hmm. interviewer. So that's all a long way of saying, I definitely think it's gotten better since I started. And I hope it continues to, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, sports is really diverse. Like the actual participants in sport is diverse. And so I honestly think the landscape covering it should try to reflect that, you know, at least to some. I'm also thinking of behind the scenes executives. Uh, If you look at nightly news on broadcast television in the United States, you have a guy who looks like me, a cute younger woman who's like his third wife as the co-anchor, you know, a black news guy, a Latina reporter, you know, the sort of score. And that is, as you say, as it should be. I mean, not necessarily my having the third trophy wife, but, you know, that we have diversity of of cultural backgrounds, of genders and so on. But who's making the decisions about what story is going to be run, what order they're run in, and so on. And frequently in the United States, as in other countries where I've lived, those decision makers are not so diverse. Right. There are fewer women in power. It's a lot of older white guys saying, oh, yeah, we'll have this diversity on camera, but not anywhere else. That's an issue too often, obviously not at ESPN magazine from what you were saying, but in general, I think it's really a big problem. I think it's definitely a problem. It's also within sport, right? So owners of teams, if you look at the NFL, you know, which is by far the most revenue generating sport in America, those teams are largely run and owned by white men, you know, and so, you know, certified Republicans, one might add. Oh, yes, for sure. And I think we are seeing though the media draw more attention to that and hopefully that then maybe can help lead to some change right um both as you said within the big media conglomerates um and the decision makers at the top there and then also within sports i think because we can still see so many individual examples right of oh look at this woman running i think the woman who runs the las vegas raiders um not the owner but um I'm blanking on her name, but she's a high ranking um, official with the Raiders and she is a woman of color. There were a lot of stories around when she was hired. Right. So you, until we get to the point where it's not these individual isolated examples, um, then I think we will actually see a little bit more of systemic change. Um, but I do think to your point, like it's surprising in 2024, how little at the very top has actually changed. Um and frankly, like, will it change <laughs> and how much, um, you know, that's mirrored in business and finance and politics. And it, it's not individual to sport and media, but certainly sport and media um, feels the effects of that. Now, I recorded the conversation last night with Jeffrey Montes de Oca, former president of the North American Sociology of Sport Association, a very noted scholar who was... <laughs> had a broken ankle from crazy mountain biking and 
one of his issues is dealing with stupid masculinity and sports and <laughs> injuries. One of the things we got to talking about, and I'd love to get your view on this, is the question of playing hurt. You're, you're probably aware that in the last few days, UEFA, which is the governing body for real football, not where people wear helmets and shoulder pads, but where they and where they actually have to be able to kick the ball. You know, the football that ninety six percent of the world's population thinks is football. That my weird, children's yeah. favorite sport. So yes, continue. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry to show my biases. No, it's true. Come, it's true. They come with the accent. But <clears throat> looking at the prevalence of certain kinds of muscular injuries and particularly anterior cruciate ligament injuries amongst women sports pros and how this is just a huge problem and trying to work out what it's about. So we talked about that and we talked about beyond that important issue, the ethos in a sort of macho way that is increasingly applying to women's sports of no pain, no gain, uh, play to play when you're hurt, and so on. No one has yet done a study looking at what this means when these people are 45 or 50 or 70. But to me, it's a crazy part of hypermasculinity that is getting transferred to women. So yeah. I, I want to know your, your views on that, because you must have seen a lot of people very injured playing sports. Yes, I think that mentality has always been there primarily in, and particularly in American football. Right. Um, which I do find fascinating. This is a slight aside, but, you know, again, it's like a multi-billion dollar industry at this point. But if you look statistically, high school participation in tackle football is actually declining in America. So I think we're going to reach this interesting inflection point of, you know, there will still be enough people who want to participate in the sport that it will continue. Um, but we are, I I would say that is primarily, and, and studies and stories have shown this, because of injury, right? Because of concussion risk, CTE risk. Parents just don't want their children that hurt and that injured that young. Um, and again, that is not exclusive to American football. It's just we see a lot of evidence um, through American football. I think the hypermasculinity, I mean, it's so interesting. It is, it's such a deeply ingrained part of sport mentality. And I think for women who have pushed so much for equality and to be seen as equals by fans, by coaches, by owners, that then has been adapted by women, right? Um, and I talk about this and I've talked about it and I've written about it, particularly with women who have wanted to become pregnant and then continue in sport or participate in sport, um, especially runners. I've done, I did several stories for ESPNW about this because a lot of corporations would cut their sponsorship, you know, and <laughs> they would push through so much physical pain and, and also would not allow their bodies time to recover. Um, because it would literally affect their contract and their bottom line. We see, we've seen stories of this in the WNBA. Um, and as a mom myself, who, I mean, I went back to working and reporting stories eight weeks after having my children, which was way too young, you know, but at the time, I mean, I literally, I remember one story, I took my second son to report with me in Kansas when he was eight weeks old by myself, but it was a story I had been pitching for two years and my editors were happy to give it to a male colleague. And I said, no, like, this is my story. And it was the only time the professional athlete could do it. So, you know, no one really thinks about as a new mother, you have no sleep if you're feeding your child by nursing, you know, all these things. And it was certainly a challenge unlike any other I had experienced. Um, and I think for a lot of women, though, even for me at the time, I knew I couldn't say 
my body is going through these things. My lack of sleep is affecting this because then I lose my opportunity. You lose your opportunity. Yeah. So it applies to journalists as well, doesn't it? I mean, so many cultural workers, it gets back to our earlier point about so-called multitasking. Well, could I ask you somewhat related to that, as it were, about queer issues? And one of the big differences in U.S. sports is that you can sort of be a queer woman, at least in team sports. Yes. You'd better not be still, I think, a queer man in in team sports. Or do you think that's changing slowly but surely? Or is it still pretty much a given that if you're in Major League Baseball or the NFL or the NBA or the NHL, you'd better be closeted if you're gay? I think some of it does depend on the sport. As you know, largely the individual examples we have seen have been after the player retires, right? Um, So Michael Sam and Carl Nassib in the NFL being an exception in that both, you know, came out as gay. Um, I would say it seems like Michael Sam's career might have been impacted by that, you know, whether it was that announcement or his performance, who knows, you know, his sporting performance. Um, I would imagine, and again, as a cisgendered female it's hard for me to really know but that it's an individual decision and choice but again it ties into like will that impact if a team will sign you you know it's a lot of athletes now because their brand and how they market themselves is so important to the contracts they sign and whether they are considered you know an athlete that a team wants all of that has to be factored in and I would say for women to your point like in the WNBA I think it's or in the NWSL, right? Um, it seems like women are very accepted. Whatever their sexuality is, they're, you know, seen as a peer. They have a lot of allies. I think for men, at least in the examples we've seen, there have been so few. It's hard to know statistically how many men identify as queer or gay and, or literally just as non-heterosexual. Mm-hmm. And then of that population, how many feel comfortable speaking their truth while being a professional athlete. And I would say though, it's hard. It it really is hard to know in the sense that it could be that their locker room would be very welcoming. It's just hard to be the one to take that chance to find out, Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> you know? And so you, you kind of have to look anecdotally at like, well, how, how did my whole league respond? You know, the Raiders were very welcoming of Carl Nassib um, from everything I've heard, read and seen. And so but, you know, he had to sort of weigh that himself. And I hope we get to a point where it doesn't matter. You know, like it's you're going to support someone as a human being and and consider yeah. that less. I, I would say I, I think it's definitely better in 2024 than it was in 1984. Right. Um, so if if change is happening incrementally, I mean, I'm always a glass half full person, but at least it's happening and it's, it's happening. not moving now, the other way. I'm thinking about trans issues, too. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with a, a, an important but much smaller percentage of the population than we are with uh, queer people or other kinds of queer people, let's say. But where <laughs> there is an absolute hysteria uh, on this issue that is bubbling up and is very complicated, there are some areas where it seems absurd. Chess is one of the recent highlights, as you may have seen, <laughs> trying, yes. trying to stop trans women from competing in women's tournaments in chess seems patently ludicrous to me 
But there are other areas where there are major splits within feminism, as, as you're aware. We've seen them over NCAA swimming issues, but right. we're seeing them in track all over the world, in cycling, in a whole host of sports where there are, you know, strong feminist arguments that are not anti-trans in general saying, excuse me, you guys, guys, as it were in this case, have had potentially the advantages not only of muscle buildup, bone buildup over years, but also the social benefits that come from hegemonic masculinity, even if you were an outsider and those don't go away. And this is our court and see ya. So I just wondered, well, I'm not asking you to adjudicate, but wh what do you think of that? those sorts of issues and what do you see as the future panning out for us? Yeah, we actually, I, as I mentioned, I teach athletes activism in the media class and we always talk about this um, because I always want to hear, I usually have student athletes in the class and I'm curious from their perspective how they feel. Um, and I think it's kind of what you were saying in that athletes want to support athletes and they want to support competition. It's harder if they feel if that there is a biological advantage for one swimmer or track star over another. Um, for me, I'm just like a recreational runner. And so it's hard for me, you know, I've thought, would I care that much if someone in my age category, you know, was a transgender woman who was, you know, biologically born a male? No, but I'm a recreational runner, you know, and so the stakes are very different, right? If it's the Olympics or a collegiate athlete competing for a national championship. And I think what we've talked about in the class um, is the question of, well, then could there be like a transgender category, right? Uh, the challenge there is the volume. Like you, you probably don't have enough athletes in that category for their own competition in the way you see, you know however many heats of men running the 800 at the track and field championships. And so I think everyone is sort of, you know, I, I believe right now in the U S and I think it's still this way. It's, it's a state by state decision, um, at least for high school athletics where, where we're seeing this question a lot. Right. Um, and I think until a lot of it is just sort of been these individual cases where they're trying to legislate it. And it's almost something where, it is a scenario where you cannot really appease everyone, right? Um, someone is probably going to feel that the system is not working in their favor or supporting them, whether that is the transgender athlete or the cisgender athlete. And yeah. it's really hard. Like, I don't actually, I don't have, to your point, I don't have a solution. I think yeah, it's sure. important to try to understand the perspectives, right? So ESPN's Katie Barnes did a really great piece with Leah Thomas, the swimmer, um, mm. because what I do think is a lot in our society and culture in sports included, we are quick to judgment, right? We are quick to make a decision. Even what we talked about at the top without researching, without understanding, without hearing the personal narratives. Right. And, and I really do think that matters. I mean, that's so much of why I'm a journalist too, is like understanding someone's how and why and, and their own experience that has influenced them getting to where they are now, is so integral to that person. And so often, you know, now with social media, when you see fans just slandering an athlete for not performing to whatever degree they wanted them to, well, maybe that athlete just went through a really traumatic personal experience or is going through a hard time, you know? And so I think 
in all these questions of like gender and sexuality and competition, like, and I'm not trying to skirt the question. I really think it's important to understand all the factors of that person's experience. Oh, I, I agree. And I think that that is going to We don't do that enough. Part of I, the way to get to what the future should be. Related to this is the question of drugs and sport. And I'm thinking of the way in which whatever the International Athletic Federation currently calls itself, you know how they these soup-like acronyms alter all the time, telling Casta Semenya and others, you know, take all these drugs to become more female, for example, at the same time as they're wagging their goddamn finger at people for taking performance-enhancing drugs, at the same time as they're turning a blind eye to athletes becoming addicted to painkillers in the same way that we've seen, obviously, most notoriously in the area of cycling, but also track and baseball sluggers of the late 90s. I don't need to say their names. Improbable. (laughs) Bodies like mine, which, of course, are natural, unlike that. No, just kidding. So it seems to me there's massive hypocrisy here about the drug issue. And, you know, supplements are fine as long as they're a certain kind of supplement. Painkillers are always fine, it seems. I mean, astonishing decisions. And then these prescriptions to people who are intersexual, intergender, depending on how you use these terms, in order to make them be more like a vision of femininity normally. I wonder if you've got a take on on that and also how that should be covered. Yes, we talk about Castor in the same class. And again, if you read about like how the physical like discomfort, pain, almost like agony that she had to endure mm. in taking the medication she was forced to take... And gender verification testing. I mean, all of it, the the mental toll and the physical toll to me is astonishing, right? Um, and again, to your point, I mean, she was just born with more testosterone. Like, I don't, why would we penalize someone for that? You know, in the same way, Michael Phelps has a body built for swimming, but we certainly don't penalize him for it, you know? Like, and, and I under, I mean, he is, he's a remarkable swimmer and we celebrate it, you know? And so by, I think any sort of biological advantage that someone is born with, like, I don't think it's fair to then try to force them, like in the case of Castor and several other runners, to change the composition of their body. I think painkillers, I mean, gosh, it seems like, and a lot of this, you know, again, is just anecdotally, but that they've been a problem in sport for so long. And it's not, I think to try to regulate it would be really hard, right? Um, especially because then once an athlete retires and if this is a regiment they've had in their life, I can imagine, I mean, I feel fortunate that I'm not in that boat because I wasn't a professional athlete, but I can imagine it's really hard to then completely abstain from that, right? Um, and Don't win if you do. Right, <laughs> exactly. And so I do think we've become a culture so obsessed with winning that like it's kind of the win at all costs. And And it it also is your story about having the newborn and taking on the story you've been pitching for two years because finally it's there and they're going to hand it to a guy. Right. Right. So these are real dilemmas. Right. Exactly. And I think, I hope what we are doing as a society is starting to support the whole athlete a little bit more. Again, I think there's like incremental progress happening there, 
Um, but even, and I've written stories about this too, where, for example, again, in the NFL, the Players Association essentially mandated in 2019 that some some type of sports psychologist, therapist, psychologist be in-house with every NFL team for a certain number of hours a week. Now, this is a great example in that some teams had already hired full-time a psychologist on staff, right? They saw the need whether from a sport performance perspective or like a mental health and support perspective. Some teams did the bare minimum, right? That was mandated through this agreement between the league and the NFLPA. And I, so that's just a really interesting example of like where I say we need to support the whole athlete. And, and honestly, at a much younger age, certainly by the time they are a professional, right? Where there's so much pressure. I mean, we just saw stories this past week of like, if an NFL player gets a certain number of tackles or a certain number of yards, they they get like a $400,000 incentive on their contract, right? And of course, that's like, even that number is crazy. But think about the pressure of that, you know, like, oh my gosh, in this one game, I have to go out. Like, that is such a mental load. And then if on the other end, we're not providing some type of support for that athlete, I just think it all compounds, right? And so my hope is that whether it be an issue of, physical pain, mental pain, gender, sexuality, socioeconomics, like whatever it is, we start supporting that athlete if they want to pursue sport at a much younger age and in a much more 360 way. Because I honestly do think, and again, I know I'm an optimistic person, but I I think that would lead to more positive outcomes. You know, maybe then you aren't relying as much on a painkiller or, you know, having all this anxiety and depression around having to meet certain thresholds. And I also think, you know, the leadership needs to understand that too. I know one good example I will say is, um, for example, at UVA, there's, I think, over 800 student athletes and there's three sports psychologists on staff specifically for student athletes. So you have student health where you can go. And then they recently hired, and I believe UVA is the first ACC, maybe even one of the first power five schools to do this. They hired a clinician for the coaching staff. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, it's not only supporting the student athletes, which is very important. It's also supporting the coaches who are leading them and who are often almost like a parental figure in their life, you know, for a set amount of time. So if you don't have uh, someone, you know, who's well versed in how to do that from all facets, mm-hmm. not just the X's and O's, mm-hmm. it all trickles down. Right. And so that's where I think, and I hope, and bringing it back to media, like, like when I did that story, I, that, the NFL and NFLPA story I did for the New York Times, and it was really interesting because I got to talk to players who were very candid about whether they felt supported in that way and mm. their own personal experience and background that had brought them to that point um, and the change they would like to see and that they continue to see. Um, and so I think writing stories like that hopefully helps make people think about it, right? Even if you and I can't do anything in our own lives in the day-to-day to change that landscape, let's at least think about it and talk about it and care about it. Right. Um, and so then that also brings it back to, that's what I try to inspire my students to do also, right. Is to just think a little more critically about something. And if it's something where we can do better, like, well, how can you inform that? Whether it be as a storyteller, you know, maybe you go into, maybe you become a social worker. I had one student who told me she wants to become a lawyer and advocate for female professional athletes (laughs) who, to some of our earlier points, you know, whether they're losing sponsorships or marketing deals or aren't, you know, treated equally. We all, we all know the whole question of equal pay, which soccer, football has done that better here, at least domestically with women and men than most sports, um, all of that. Right. So there's a lot there. And I think 
the more we talk about it and think about it, starting younger, the better, hopefully, it continues to get. Now, Prof, I'm aware that your husband and sons are dodging the storm. Of... My children are wrestling downstairs. I can hear them. Oh, okay. All right. So they're, they're, they're inside, but they're downstairs. They're inside. They get flooded in seconds time. But <laughs> I've got two more questions for you, Prof, if I may. And then I'd like to invite you to add or subtract, as it were, if there are things we've not touched on that you want to mention, please do. Yeah. So my first question is 2009, I think it is, Yahoo Sports first uses artificial intelligence to report mm. on games, to use box scores and so on. So, in fact, AI and sports of journalism have been around longer than almost anything else other than weather forecasts. No one talks about this now, but that's the reality. And it's increasing. We've just seen a massive controversy at Sports Illustrated, not about sports writing in the sense of conventional sports journalism, but in the sense of the sponsored writing bullshit that magazines now include, where people who don't exist have entire biographies invented for them. You're very familiar with this. Now, you know, this is a magazine that not only has had you as one of its writers, but Don DeLillo uh, John Steinbeck, you know, you name it, in a storied history. Um, what do you see as being the current and future impact of artificial intelligence on sports journalism? I think it can serve dual purposes because, to your point, I mean, something like a game recap, as exciting as it is for someone to be there and to give you that the crowds got to their feet at this point, or this brawl broke out at this point. Also, if you just want to understand why the Memphis Grizzlies won by 40 and you just want the recap of performance, I'm fine with a robot writing that, right? Mm-hmm. I'm also fine if an individual is really wanting to cover the Grizzlies and will give you all those personal narratives. So my answer is I think there is a place for both. I just think the outlets need to be very candid about and very forthcoming about what, who is writing what, <laughs> what is writing what. <laughs> so I think it's it's silly to try to say, oh, artificial intelligence, this is just a phase, it'll go away. You know, like it's not. Um, it's more and more indoctrinating in our day-to-day lives, as you said, in seen and unseen ways, right? Um, when I mean, we talk about this in academia, you know, how do you not have a student having chat GPT writing all their papers? Um, I think within sports, I hope there will always be a need, a desire for the stories of human narrative that you really need a journalist to write, right? To have that narrative structure, to conduct all those interviews. You know, if I'm going to go profile you, Toby, I'm going to interview 40 people, hopefully, right? And and a robot will not do that. And so you need an audience for that, though, right? Like, that's the thing is like, as long as there's audience for it, Um, which we have seen that shift, right? Um, There's so much social media content now and just quick hit content, right? But again, I mean, sort of related to that, a lot of athletes now are really becoming media practitioners, right? In the sense that whether it's the Players' Tribune or whether it's their own social media channels where they just say, or or podcasts, you know, we have so many athlete-led podcasts now. And it's those can't be replicated by a robot, right? Or by AI. And so it seems fans are really eager for and hungry for and have always wanted to almost not have the middle person, right? And just know the athlete. 
And I don't think artificial intelligence can do that in the way that either. But but teams can, clubs, teams, corporations that create social media accounts for players, for athletes and pretend this is the real voice and thereby dodge the middle person in the sense of a critical journalism. No, sorry to interrupt. Well, I don't think a heck of a lot. And the hope is that there will always be the space for the true journalism, right? And so even if you have AI churning out, you know, recaps or updates or even these like sort of who will win, these speculative analysis driven, like we see all the talking heads doing all the time on studio shows, right? Again, you can have both in that space. And as someone who's spent many years focused on features and profiles of athletes and who, you know, poured so much time and energy into them, I just don't think at this point, artificial intelligence can produce a holistic narrative arc story in the way that a human can. And and that could be like an SC feature or an E60, right? A television production as well. Um, That might change. But right now, I think, you know, it's accepting that artificial intelligence is here and it's not going anywhere. And like with Sports Illustrated in that example, you know, just be forthcoming from the get-go and just say, you know, don't pretend a fake person (laughs) and a fake background. Just say, you know, these stories were produced by AI or by ChatGPT, you know, and and that's all it needs to be. And just have that understanding. And then the reader or the viewer or the listener can discern how and what they want to consume. So my my last question, Prof, before I throw it open to you is to ask you something about how you come up with your stories. I mean, the level of determination and research must have gone into pitching a story for two years and finally having it accepted is amazing. So could you give us a little glimpse into how you come up with what you do and then go about doing it? Sure. Um, I do it all the time. So uh, I don't have as much time anymore to write the stories. And uh, I still love to challenge myself. So I just always think about there was there's a there's a really really one of the best writers today and he is at ESPN but across all mediums right Thompson he always says don't pitch an idea pitch a question and so I give him full credit for that I always teach my students that and I say right Thompson said this and he's you know considered one of the greatest writers of all time so take it um remember it and so I always just literally started like what am I curious about um And if it's something that resonates with me that I am more curious about, then I sort of ask myself, you know, well, has the story been written about this? If not, how can I pitch it or write about it, but in a way that is different from what everyone else is writing? So I'll give one short, quick example. This past August, so the Leadville 100 is sort of one of the iconic ultra marathons in the U.S., really actually globally. Um, there's like five Western states, Leadville 100, et cetera. It's in Colorado. It's the highest elevation. It's a hundred mile race. You have to complete in 30 hours. That is not new. You know, a lot of the ultra marathoners now who are at, in the elite category are not new, like the Courtney Dow Walters. I mean, she's amazing. And if you know anything of running or elite sport, you know of her, right? So I learned that two former NFL team members this past August were going to try to compete the Leadville 100. Now, Immediately, that was, there are my children. <laughs> I'm on the stand. Can you let Anton over? Yes. Can you go downstairs? I'm on the stand. Can you let Anton over? Yes, you need to go downstairs and then I will. Um, that is also the working mother life. Um, 
So for me, as soon as I learned that, I thought, well, that's interesting, right? Because when you think about, again, the NFL and American football, that is not, when you think about the physique, typically, of an NFL player, sure, there are safeties and wide receivers and kickers and quarterbacks, but largely, still not an endurance athlete, right? Um, And then also, why? Like, if they played in the NFL, they probably, you know, had a decent career or have continued to do other things um, using their fame or elite athlete capabilities, so it just was a series of questions, right? So why? Why now? Um, and then fast forward to, ultimately, that led to me getting to report and write from Leadville a great story about these two. And But again, it was not the news headline of, like, NFL players compete in Leadville 100. It's everything behind it, right? Because as humans, when we read a story or watch a story or listen to a story, a lot of what we look for is relatability, right? You and I will never play in the NFL, no offense. Um, and so that is not something I can relate to these two men on, right? Um, but I can relate to this question of, can I push myself to do this thing I've never done that no one would expect of me given my history, right? Or this question of, as a former professional athlete, am I just always going to be reaching for that next thing, right? And, and, and we wonder that about professional athletes, you know, and then there's a lot of question around, well, what do they do after sport? How, who is their identity and how do they find that? So that was in this story, you know? So it's like, mm. it's all these questions that I think hopefully a lot of readers would be curious about. Um, and then there's just the practicality of doing the thing itself, you know, in this instance where that's a really hard thing to do. You're staying up all night. <laughs> a lot of people in this instance, I think 700 started and only 365 even finished. So you know, it's also knowing someone will reach a breaking point. Um, and, you know, all the story ideas are so different. But it just starts with, like, a literal curiosity. And that's where I sit at the top. Like, I have a notes app in my phone, and I will just type a question. Or I'll email, look into this more. Be curious about this. Um, and, and a lot of times that doesn't pan out, right? Like, someone's written it. It's not interesting anymore. Um it happens a year later, but then when stories are greenlit, often it answers all those questions, right? There is going to be curious about this too. Anna Catherine, thank you so much. Can I just give you the chance, if you wish to add anything before you scoot off downstairs in mom mode? To the chaos. Um, no, I mean, just thank you for having me. I encourage, one thing I always encourage people to think about is like, storytelling is all around us all the time and to appreciate that. <laughs> and I say this to my students, you know, who are so clued into social media and to TikTok and maybe it's not the most well curated, like spent two years on it <laughs> stories. Um, and yet it's such an integral part of who we are that I think appreciating that. And then always, if you want to do this as a profession, right, which is one of the reasons I wanted to get into teaching is I wanted to inspire students to be storytellers or to break into an industry they didn't feel, you know, was always serving their population, whatever the case is, to be curious about it and, and to find something you're passionate about doing, and then to really pursue it, regardless of challenge. I think the other thing I've really learned from athletes too um, in covering them over the years is your failures are like just as important as your successes. And and I say this in my own life to my students all the time. I try to say it to my kids, like really don't just 
be disappointed or crushed by it and move on, like really try to learn from it. And athletes really taught me that, you know, like watching them after losing, you know, the national championship or, and then talking to them six months later, or in the case of the university of Virginia, I got to do a story. If you don't follow college basketball, they were the first number one seed in the NCAA tournament back in 2019 to lose to a 16 seed. It had never happened in the history of the tournament, right? The team was just, you know, everyone vilified them, the UVA team, and that happened, right? And and to me, of course, that was that was a news headline at the time. It was a story. But what was more interesting to me was six months later, you know, mm. how have these players, what have they learned from that, right? And they all experienced it so differently. The ones I talked to, it was so interesting. Some of them were in the gym every day for hours and hours. Some of them swore off social media, you know. And then I ended up doing a story on one of the players on that team, prior to the team then turning around and winning the entire national championship the next year, right? Which is such a storybook situation, but it was so fascinating to talk to just him and then some of his teammates and his coaches about how that, what we see as failure in society really informed and shaped how they moved through the next year and then continued to. Um, So I don't know, that's something like, I always think about what have I learned in my profession that like, I can encourage people to think about in life, right? And and most of the time, the people I'm trying to um, hopefully inspire and inform are my students, right? And so I don't know. I would encourage your listeners to think about that. Um, and like I said, at the top, the world can be, the news can be heavy and intense and hard. Um, but there's also like really beautiful stories out there and stories of people who've overcome. And I think that's one of the reasons we'll always need sports storytelling is to to read those stories and to identify with them and to learn from them and to feel something from them. And so I hope that is always there. Anna Catherine, thank you so much. I feel as though I've learned so much from you in the last. Oh, you're very sweet. I don't know about that, but thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun and a great conversation. So thank you.